Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us every week at the same time as we share the gospel that the Lord has revealed to us. In this uh, particular segment, I am going to begin to introduce to you a series that we're going to do and a study that we're going to do on the book of Romans. I think probably the book of Romans is one of the most concise and comprehensive explanations of the gospel probably than any other book in the Bible. It is really difficult probably to share this in 30-minute segments because I always encourage people when they're reading the book of Romans to read this book as an entire letter. And the reason I say that is because if you just read pieces of it, you're going to see a whole lot of stuff out of context, and you're not going to really get the gist of what's being said, because it really starts out in the beginning of it by the first several chapters talking about the problem, or if you will, the indictment, the indictment upon all humanity, not just Jew, but Gentile alike. And then chapters 3 through probably somewhere around 7 or 8, it is dealing with the remedy, or it is dealing with the antidote for the problem, or the provision for the problem. And then the latter part of it is the process and the outworking of that. But if you don't get this, you're going to kind of miss the gist of what's being said. But this is the first one. So to, in this particular segment, we're going to teach this as if we are in a Bible school class, perhaps because we use sometimes some of this material in classes and some things that we do in teaching. So if you want to study the book of Romans, I suggest you set your DVR or go back again and watch it on the YouTube channel. I might also mention that um, we have a podcast and a RSS feed of these programs, and after we air them, we upload them to that so that you can go back and at your leisure, you can listen to them or watch them at your leisure. And the easiest way to do that is simply to go to my website. It's on the screen there. And the upper right-hand corner, there are icons there that'll take you directly to those channels, and you can watch them and listen to them at your leisure. Uh, we're going to talk about the introduction of the book of Romans. The While the four Gospels present the words and the works of Jesus Christ, the book of Romans explores the significance of His sacrificial death. The book of Romans is more than a book of theology. It is also a book of practical exhortation. The good news of Jesus Christ is more than facts to, to be believed, or it's more than facts to believe. It is also a life to be lived, a life of righteousness befitting to the person that is justified freely by God's grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Gentiles were the predominant in the church at Rome, but there were also Jewish believers. And Paul wrote the book of Romans somewhere around A.D. 57, near the end of his third missionary journey. Now, I want to just make an emphasis here because I want to just point out that this book really is really beginning to show the emphasis of God's inclusion 
of the Gentiles. And uh, as he begins to unfold this, I have seen some recently that want to shy away from and understanding that, uh, you know, that, you know, some of this stuff was written to the Jew only. But I want to tell you that his, he, what, what, what really had occurred in the book of Acts, especially in the First Jerusalem Council after Paul had made his journey to the Romans, and they began to discover that, you know, God was including Gentiles. And they were having a big discourse of whether or not they should bring these, uh, you know, these Gentile believers back up under the law of Moses. And in Acts around chapter 14, I believe chapter 15, they have a big Jerusalem council where the apostles began to gather and discuss the issues like circumcision and should we put these Gentiles that are being saved back up under the law to which many of these apostles, especially the apostle Paul, stood up and said, listen, we could not keep this burden ourselves, and do we want to put on these brethren a burden that we could not carry even ourselves? And that was where they began to discuss even the reality that there was no longer a demand or a call for physical circumcision. And Peter stands up and begins to give the testimony how that God at the first had visited him, and move completely out of his paradigm. I mean, God had so jumped out of his theological box, thinking that, you know, anything outside of Jewish believers was common or unclean, but on a rooftop. Uh, while Peter was waiting on, uh, I believe it was, uh, uh, dinner to t- be served, he fell into a trance, and while he was there, God let down a great sheet knit at the four corners wherein was all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things. And God said to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Lord, not so. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Now, what we understand is that that's more than a picture of God telling Peter, okay, it's all right to eat pork now or or, uh, a catfish, which was not uh, uh, allowable under the law of Moses. It was God showing him that he was including the Gentiles, and he told him while he stood there that there's one at the door and you're to go with them. And so he took him to the house of Cornelius, a man of the Italian band who was a devout man. And when he went to the house of Cornelius, he simply preached Christ. And when he preached Christ, the Holy Spirit fell. And the house of Cornelius was converted and filled with the Holy Spirit, and God had literally jumped out of Peter's theological box and was doing something that had never been heard of, but yet was anticipated according to the book of Colossians. It was the mystery that had been hid from ages, but it was literally the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham that your seed will not only bless the nation of Israel, but they will bless the nations of the earth in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we know that through Jesus Christ and His redemptive work, that all the nations of the earth were being included. And now this was the beginning of a massive move of God that was really going to begin to filter into the church and even some of the things that they disputed later on as they decided, what should we do? And one of the things was they told them not to eat meat offered to idols or uh, and to abstain from sexual immorality. 
And one of the main reasons he was telling them to abstain from meat offered to idols, he says in another place that if meat offends your brother, then don't eat meat while he, uh, while he is there because of his weak conscience. Now let me tell you why that was. Because Gentiles and Jews were beginning to come together for the first time and worship the true God and worship the Christ. And they were doing that together and uh, some of the practices that the Gentiles had were not kosher, and they would sometimes eat meat that they had bought at the marketplace that maybe had been sacrificed to idols. And so what Paul was saying to them is, listen, we're blending these two literally different cultures together, two, two completely different paradigms, and let's not offend each other with our liberties, but let's bring them together and allow them to begin to partake of the uh, of the fellowship and of the good word of God and so it was a beginning of a journey and I love that because I look at the book of acts especially and you see an unfolding progressive revelation of what God is doing in the earth as they are starting to understand that the cross and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the gospel even that Jesus preached was starting to unfold in a practical way as to how it would impact not just the nation of Israel, but the world as a whole. And we know today because of what he did. And so Paul's description in the book of Romans is really a great uh, exhortation or, if you will, a, 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 a great message from Romans 1 all the way through of what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus really accomplished. And we're going to dig into that and delve into it in a massive way. During this series, you don't want to miss any of it. It really becomes clear as you start to uh, unfold this how much the Apostle Paul was really helping them to make a trans uh, a transition from the old covenant paradigm under law to the new covenant kingdom of God under grace and this incredible gift of righteousness. So uh, we want to talk then about the Christ of Romans. Paul presents Jesus Christ as the second and the last Adam. The righteousness and the substitutionary death provided justification for all who place their faith in Him. He offers this righteousness as a gracious gift to sinful men. Having borne God's condemnation for their sinfulness, His death and resurrection are the basis for the believer's redemption, justification, reconciliation, salvation, and glorification. The theme of Romans is found in chapter 1, and I'll emphasize this quite a bit, but the theme of Romans is found in chapter 1, verse number 16. God offers the gift of righteousness to everyone who comes to Christ by faith. Paul writes Romans to reveal God's sovereign plan of salvation, to show how both Jews and Gentiles, they fit into that plan, and to exhort them to live righteous and harmonious lives out of the gift of righteousness. And the latter parts 12 through 16 in his sweeping presentation, verses 6, 12 through 16, in this sweeping presentation of God's plan of salvation, Paul moves from condemnation to glorification and from traditional truth to practical truth, or what I call the objective and subjective sides of the gospel, which biblically termed are the way of grace 
and the walk of faith. Most of our biblical arguments and most of what people fall out over in arguments is they either overemphasize the objective side of the gospel, which is what God, what, what is the objective side of the gospel? Well, it is what God did in Christ without any help from you. I call that the way of grace. It is God's unmerited gift and favor upon your life that He gives to you without you earning it, without you deserving it. And as I'm talking about this, I feel like I need to emphasize this as well. He begins to make the transition from an old covenant righteousness that's based on performance to a new covenant righteousness that is given because of a gift. You didn't earn it. It was some grand setting everything right that God did through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that was a gift of God. That's the objective side of the gospel. The subjective side of the gospel is my response to His grace or what He did. And so when I say the objective side and the subjective side, again, the subjective side is my appropriating by faith what God has freely provided by grace. That's an important, important piece of information. Because if we don't appropriate by faith what God's already done through grace, then you can talk about what all you have, but it's like having a bank account and something put in your deposit without having any access to draw from it. But we access this grace by faith. In other words, uh, our salvation, our redemption, our reconciliation is not something God is going to do for all of humanity. It is something He has already done. Now let me just say that, and then that's the objective side of the gospel. But my appropriating that and walking in that and in enjoying it comes when I appropriate by faith the fact that since I've been reconciled by the death of His Son, that the message I declare is you need to be reconciled to God. Be ye reconciled to God. In other words, you need to simply receive the free gift of righteousness and by faith appropriate it. And I'd like to explain it like this. It would be, is, I, I think the first time I ever preached the objective and subjective side of the gospel, I was in Trinidad, and I pulled a $20 bill out of my pocket, and in their economy at that time, that $20 bill was worth six times what it's worth in the U.S., so it was worth $120. And I pulled the $20 bill out, and I laid it on the altar, and I said, this $20 bill is a free gift to anybody who wants it. You didn't earn it. You, it I, 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 you know, you didn't merit it. And I said, all you have to do is just come and get it. And I laid it on the altar in front of the church. And everybody looked at first like, well, is this a, a trick or not a trick? And finally somebody came forward to get that $20 bill. And they looked at me like well, I was going to ask for it back. I said, no, it wasn't a trick. It was That was an absolutely, this is free gift to you. I said, you know what you just did though? was you accessed by faith. I said, you're the only one in the room that believed enough that that was a free gift to come and receive it and to put it in your pocket and appropriate it. That's the gospel. Is there some good news that's being announced that Jesus did a whole lot of stuff? And the good news is all you've got to do is by faith simply 
receive it. Somebody said, well, you know, uh, you know, I, I just think it's all done and nobody has to believe anything or anything, but I like to explain it like this. Not only is my redemption, my salvation, my reconciliation, and all of that completed in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that He's delivered us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but the Scripture says also this. It says, by whose stripes you were healed, so that my healing is not in my future. It was already paid for at Calvary. So how does that work then? Because my back's hurting, or my foot hurts, or I'm dealing with this infirmity. Well, what happens is, is that which He has provided for you by grace simply can be received by faith. And when we receive by faith, I'm telling you, the Word of God is full of faith. And we will get into a lot of the details of that as we come down through this incredible book of uh, Romans. And so one of the key verses in this is in, like I said, Romans 1, verse number 16. It says, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Watch this. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just will live by faith. And I may come back and deal with that scripture just a little bit more, but this is really the emphasis. What Paul was saying is the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Why is that? Because the gospel is the announcement that the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the righteousness that is not a product of works of the law, because the end of the law, as I'm jumping way ahead of myself, but the reason, again, I said the book of Romans has got to be read all the way through is because especially the first two chapters of Romans are really full of an indictment to everything and everybody. But what we usually like to do is pick and choose what we think the big sins are in Romans 1 and 2, and it kind of keeps the heat off of us so that we don't have to face our own complicity in the fact that the whole intention of the law was to conclude all under sin so He could have mercy on everybody because what He declares as after a 1 and 2, I mean, if you read chapters number 1 and 2 of the book of Romans and stop there, you're going to preach a real message of condemnation. And you are going to walk away saying, I am so guilty that I don't know if I'm even uh, worthy of being in the presence of God. But the gospel, again, is the announcement of a righteousness. That doesn't mean you glow in the dark. It means you've been given the gift of being put in right standing with God, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what He's done. See, if you're preaching a message of what would Jesus do? And you're not preaching a message that includes what has Jesus done. You probably are living in a works-based condemnation, uh, a feeling where you simply uh, feel like I I'm constantly disqualified. I, I don't know how much I'll get into this, but let me just say this to you. When I first began to teach this, like I said, Romans 1 and 2 are dealing with God bringing an indictment to everybody and everything. 
I have a guy that traveled with me for some, for some years that whenever he, he uh, first traveled, he came from uh, a street background. Uh, I won't go into a whole lot of detail about that, except to tell you that he didn't know much about God at all. He was really, I mean, totally fresh off the streets. God had marvelously delivered him from substance abuse and from a life of crime and a bunch of stuff like that. And so I bought him a Bible and he, uh, uh, he was reading one night. We, he was flying to meet me in Arizona, and our flights got messed up, and he got delayed in Pittsburgh, and I was on to, to Arizona. But he came in late several hours that night, and he said when he got in the airport, he pulled the Bible out that I'd given him, and he started reading. And he read Romans 1 and 2. And when he walked in the hotel room late that night, he walked in the room, and he said, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And I laughed. I said, what is wrong with you, brother? He said, have you read this book before? I said, well, a couple of times, my friend. And he said, you know, I think you're lying to the people. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, what did you read? He said, Romans 1 and 2. I said, how far did you get? He said, chapter 2. I said, that's the setup. You can't stop with Romans 2 because if you do, you're going to have that same response. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And you're going to feel disqualified. And that's the problem. That's what we've done with what we call the gospel is we've used it as a club to beat people up rather than the announcement of the good news that God accepts you on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus and not on the basis of how good you are. That's the only hope for all of us. He includes the sinner and the saint, and we'll see that as we unfold this book. But when he sat down on the bed, I said, read chapter 3 now. Because as you read down chapter 3, of the book of Romans, it finally brings you to the climax of the first part of this book, which is the indictment. Uh, or if you will, he identifies the problem and he says to them, here's the end of the law. There's none righteous. No, not even one. Not even Moses, the mediator of that covenant, was declared to be righteous on the basis of the law. And the reason it was is so that he could conclude all under sin so he could have mercy on all. And when he read that, that's the only scripture that he could quote for years. I would start, i say, what's the scripture say? He said, there's none righteous, no, not even one. And uh, But uh, as you begin to read on down through the book of Romans, you begin to see how Abraham simply believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. And then as you get through the latter parts of it, you start to see the outworking of that. But I want to declare to you that Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And what it does is it declares something that may not appear to be visible to the physical eye because sometimes you don't look like you're righteous. You don't act like you're righteous. But when you begin to continue to look at the gospel that declares your righteousness, and all of a sudden, somewhere, you begin to believe that. Then all of a sudden, you start to manifest and walk out of the righteousness that was freely given to you by grace. Hallelujah. And so that Romans 1 verse 16 is the very emphasis of uh, the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. It is declared to be the righteousness of God without the law. Uh, it, it, it declares that the righteousness of God without the law is, is, is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all upon all that believe. For there is no difference. Here's the conclusion again. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the glory is not just a glow in the dark. It's the glorious life 
that God has intended for us to live and then manifest His nature and, and be conformed to the image of the Son and be a manifestation. As a, a, a manifestation, as Romans 8 will declare, a manifestation of the sons of God, not as servants and slaves, but a manifestation of sons. And so the book of Romans could be broken down into three parts again. Chapters 1 through uh, probably chapter 3 to 4 is the problem. Chapters 5 through probably around 9 is the provision. And chapters number 9 through probably 16 is the practical application. So the problem, the provision, and the practical application. Or we could say it like this, 1 through 4 is the revelation of God's righteousness, or let me put it this way, 1 through 6 is the revelation of God's righteousness, 6 through 12 is the vindication of God's righteousness, and 12 through 16 is the application of God's righteousness. The three sections also again could be called the diagnosis, the deliverance, and part three describes the free life, what the free life looks like. The book of Romans, again, is one long letter. In the book of uh, Romans, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, these two verses present the theme of Romans because it combines the three crucial concepts of salvation, righteousness, and faith. From one, Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, Paul builds a solid case for the condemnation of all people under a holy God. The Gentiles are without excuse because they have suppressed the knowledge of God. They receive from, the nat- their, 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 from nature their conscience and condemnation from their conscience. The purpose of this first part of all that he names is, is to name sin, is to conclude all under sin so he can have mercy on all. The universal verdict upon all is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 21 through 5, 21 centers on and develops the theme of God's provision for man's need. The first 11 verses are the core of the book of Romans. 3:21 through 31, revealing that in Christ, God is both judge and savior. Justification is by grace, the source of salvation is by the blood, and the basis of salvation is by faith, the uh, the condition of salvation. Chapter 4 illustrates the principles of justification by faith apart from works in the life of Abraham. He justifies issues of reconciliation between God and man. It is brought about by by the love of God, which is ceaseless. Paul contrasts the two Adams and and uh, the opposite results of their acts. The righteousness of the second Adam is imputed to all who trust in Him, leading to reconciliation, while the sin of the first Adam was imputed to men. God's act gave us the gift of righteousness. That is the good news, and that must be preached and believed on. It is the gospel. It is both objective and subjective. It is the way of grace and the walk of faith. It is what God did in Christ by grace, without any help from us to reconcile us. But it's my response by faith. We appropriate the grace by faith. Well, we're about out of time. I want to thank you for joining us again. Join us again next week as we continue to study the book of Romans. If you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, please go to the link on the website there, or that you can scan that code and you can give via your credit card. You can set up a monthly debit, give a one-time gift if you'd like, or you can send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen or you can also call that number on the screen and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message. We will call you back. We appreciate you and thank you for joining us every week. God bless you until next week.
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.